the subject of the atonement, how God in his plan and in his mercy and grace made us to be at one with him through Christ. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 8 through 10 emphasize the ministry of Christ under the new covenant. And as we looked at the last time in chapter 8, some of the points that the writer of Hebrews has made through the book, he's already taking for granted, but reviewing. One of those points being that we have a high priest, and how does he get to be a high priest? Well, you have to read the first part of Hebrews to understand that. But we have a high priest. He has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, chapter 8, verse 1 says. And then it says, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. So he's drawing attention to some themes that he'll elaborate on later. The fact that he says the true tabernacle draws attention to another tabernacle, which we're going to read about in chapter 9. Not that it was any less true in the sense that it didn't represent reality, but it was really symbolic. It was a parable. It was a picture that God gave. So as we read chapter 9, that's where we're uh, beginning, thinking about that earthly tabernacle. And we'll read down through verse 14 in Hebrews chapter 9. Scripture says, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without blood, or taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who've been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. We have a high priest who has passed into the heavens. He has offered his sacrifice, and he is the mediator of a better covenant. A better covenant because there are better promises. Those better promises that we looked at in chapter 8 include the knowledge of God inwardly, not just a knowledge about him, but truly knowing him in the heart. There's a personal relationship with God. And that knowledge of God, when it comes to the new covenant, is extensive within the nation of Israel. That's 
the point that is made by the author as well as Jeremiah chapter 31. There's also the forgiveness of sins. And we're reading the book of Hebrews. And so you would expect that the readers in the first century would have been Jews specifically. But if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, you might say, well, then how do I fit in to the new covenant? And I want to ask you to turn, keep a finger here or a place marker and turn back to Jeremiah chapter 31. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 27. In my Bible, there's a heading starting in verse 27, which says a new covenant. God's plan for Israel involves a new covenant. Verse 27, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast, as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, verse 31, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. And I'll stop there, but I want to just ask the question, with whom is the new covenant made? If you look at that passage, with whom is the new covenant made? Well, if you look at the words of the Lord, verse 31, he says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The house of Israel and the house of Judah would be those two portions of the one nation of Israel. Eventually, the nation will be one again. But the promise that God makes here is to make a new covenant with Israel. And verse 33 makes reference to that connection, or at least their combination, their restoration back to the place where it's one nation. Verse 33, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So I ask the question in part because it's important to recognize that this covenant is made with the nation of Israel. There are those who, as they look at the new covenant and they look at the teaching of the New Testament, suggest that in light of what is going on with Israel now, that the nation has not come to the Lord, that this isn't uh, hasn't taken place, but there is a people who have come to the Lord and know the Lord, and God's law, in a sense, is in their heart, and they have received forgiveness of sins. They've received the blessings of the new covenant that they would regard the church as having replaced Israel, that the church somehow is the one who is the real intended recipient of the new covenant. I don't believe that squares with even this passage of scripture. I don't believe that's the right way to interpret it. There are some who, based upon what's going on in the New Testament and what the New Testament teaches about the new covenant, they actually suggest there are two new covenants, one for the church and one for Israel. They acknowledge that this one with Israel is made with Israel, but then there's 
another one for the church because the church experiences the things that are described in Hebrews chapter 8. I think the best way to explain what is taking place with regard to the new covenant is that there really is only one, one new covenant. And it is fulfilled in the end with Israel. It was inaugurated by Christ. There are blessings for the Gentiles. The Gentiles enter into the new covenant. They participate in the salvation blessings of that new covenant. But we're still waiting for the fulfillment of what Jeremiah says here, what the Lord says through him when he talks about the nation having an extensive knowledge of God. And I think if we compare this passage with other passages in the Old Testament and even the New, we do see there's a future for national Israel. And by national, I mean the nation, but the nation when God restores them as a nation. And so the new covenant that we are paying attention to, if you turn back to Hebrews chapter 9, has blessings for us now, but there will be a final fulfillment for the life of the nation when they are converted, when they recognize Christ for who he truly is. But we get to participate in the blessings. And as you study, whether it's Hebrews or other New Testament writers, like the Apostle Paul, as he talks about the new covenant, you can see there very uh, much is within the teaching of the letters that Paul wrote within the Gospels. There's an emphasis on this new covenant, which, if you think about it, was actually made, cut, you might say, with the apostles, all of whom were Jews. None of them were Gentiles. And so when Christ made this covenant, cut this covenant, as he gave his life to seal that covenant, and you might say inaugurate that covenant, that is the beginning of it. But when it's fulfilled, when it's finally fulfilled, it will be a wonderful day to rejoice that God is truthful to his word. He is truthful to his word. There's still in chapter 9 before the writer of Hebrews draws attention to Christ as the mediator, there's an emphasis again on that first covenant. So we're going to go back and think a little bit about the shadows. Not very long. The writer himself doesn't want to dwell too long upon the shadow. Verse 5, at the end of the verse, he says, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And so what he's mentioned in verses 1 through 5 is significant with regard to the old covenant. But if we were going to study all these things in detail, we'd have to go back to Old Testament passages, and that's not his purpose here. But let's at least work our way through verses 1 through 5 and see this first covenant sanctuary, this first covenant tabernacle. He says in verse 1, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. The word for regulations is a word that is translated requirements as well. When Zacharias and Elizabeth walked blamelessly, it says they walked in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. The word for worship here is a spiritual sort of a, uh, we get our word liturgy from it. It's a spiritual kind of service. And so what's taking place in that earthly tabernacle is God is giving requirements for his people to follow regarding how they are to worship him and how they are to serve him in that time. And he also uses the words, the earthly sanctuary. And if we just stopped and thought about verse 1 for just a moment and thought about all the teaching in the Old Testament about it, we can see that God is very detailed and specific in how he is to be worshipped. Uh, it is not just anything goes. It is what God has specified and what he has revealed. This is the way that he is to be worshipped. And as I've pointed out before, when it comes to worship, we worship on the basis of God's revelation. We don't worship based on our own innovation. 
or our imagination. We're not coming up with ideas as to how to worship him. We're seeking to follow the word of God and its teaching. And when God has, as he says in verse one, regulations, requirements, this is the way he is to be approached, then it's really not up to Moses or Bezalel or any of the others who participated in the building of that first tabernacle to start thinking about, oh, how can we make this a little bit different, a little bit better? Because God has specific things that he was revealing as he specified what the tabernacle was to be. And it was prepared. Verse 2, it says, for there was a tabernacle prepared. Remember all the work that went into preparing it, to making it, to building it, supplying all the materials for it. Israel participated in an offering, and as they gave the offering and the, the uh, workers with skill went to work, they crafted what God said they ought to craft and make so that they prepared this for really a living picture of what Christ was going to come to do. That tabernacle, verse 2, that's the word for tent. And in the original uh, tabernacle, of course, before the temple, it really was a tent. Uh, it was meant to be movable. Uh, it says there was a tabernacle prepared. That would be a tent prepared. The outer one, that's a portion of the tabernacle which was covered. And in that portion of the tabernacle, it says the lampstand was there. The table was there, and the sacred bread was there, or the this is also called the holy place. There's the outer court of the tabernacle, but as you get into the tent itself, the covered area, this is what you would find. And this is the place where the priests came and attended to the lampstand and to the table and to the altar of incense. This lampstand, which is mentioned sometimes called the menorah. It had seven lamps. They were filled with oil. That oil was to be constantly supplied. That light was to continually shine. So practically, the priests, as they came through, could function in that place. There was light there, even though there was tent all the way around. And we could explore the meaning of the lampstand itself and what it signified, I think simply you could say Christ is the light of the world and this pointed to him, but the writer is not drawing attention so much as just the reality that the lampstand was there. And then there's the table and it says the sacred bread or literally the loaves of presentation. What was that? Well, it was a table that was to be regularly supplied, weekly supplied with bread sometimes called the bread of the presence. And it signified by putting that bread in there on a regular basis, made by whichever priest was responsible for that to bring it in there, was a testimony that God was providing for the needs of the nation. That was a sacrifice to acknowledge that God was the source of life, that he was sustaining their life. One writer describes it this way, the 12 loaves constituted a perpetual thank offering to God from the 12 tribes for the blessings they received from him from day to day. And so in the tabernacle, there was a testimony to the thankfulness of the people. There was the light that was shining in there as a certainly the truth of God, but also ultimately the ultimate truth of God, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, and this is where in verses three and four, if you have ever studied the tabernacle, there's something a little different about verses three and four that may not exactly correspond to what you've thought about before. Verse three, it says, behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. This is the holiest place. And verse 4, it says, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. That holy of holies, as you think about where it was and what was in there, what is expected is that Ark of the Covenant. What might not be expected in the description here is that the altar of incense was there. And if you look at the 
marginal note next to that word or those words translated altar of incense, you may see the word censer. So you've got two things. You have an altar that's square and has incense on it. You also have a censer, which was to carry that incense. And the question is, for the one who's reading Hebrews and also looking at the Old Testament, is which one is he talking about? In the Old Testament, it was apparent that the altar of incense was not inside the veil. It was outside the veil. It wasn't with the Ark of the Covenant. It was outside the veil, but it was right in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So if you were to walk towards the holiest place, there's a veil there, and right in front of the veil is that altar. And as the incense smoked up, filled at times the room, but also would have wafted into that holiest place, I think the best way to explain what the writer is talking about here is that altar of incense had reference to what was taking place in the holiest place. Even though it was on the other side of the veil, God had commanded that the altar of incense be there. And what does that altar of incense refer to, or what does incense in the Word of God picture? It's a picture of prayer. It's a picture of, as the, as the children of Israel, the priests supplied that altar with incense on a regular, continual basis. It was not to go out. It meant that there was to be continual prayer made to God. It seems that the psalmist has this in view when he says, may my prayer be counted as incense before you. And then he says, to lifting up my hands as the evening offering. So we've got the holy place where there's the lampstand, the table, the sacred bread. There's the holiest place, which has the altar of incense just outside the veil, but with reference to what's inside, because what's inside is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the visible symbol of God's presence. Excuse me. The visible symbol of God's presence on earth. It was at times taken with the children of Israel as they traveled before them to really demonstrate that God was going before them. Remember the children of Israel also took it into battle. This is the only play, piece of furniture placed within the Holy of Holies. You can find the, uh, the details of its construction back in Exodus. It's a cube, 1.5 cubits in length, width, and height. And what's separating that from, and obviously covered with gold, what's separating that from view is this huge veil that that came right in front of it, and you could not have access to that, to the Ark of the Covenant. Obviously, they did when they moved it, but when it was set up, you could not have access to that Ark of the Covenant except when? One time a year. And it was only the high priest, and it was only on the Day of Atonement. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant, he describes as, in verse 4, inside of it, there was a golden jar holding manna. So it's not golden manna, but it's a golden jar that had manna. Manna that was collected during the time when God gave manna, but miraculously, I believe, preserved throughout Israel's history, and we don't know what's happened to all of that now, but for Israel's history, God preserved that manna as a testimony to his provision for the nation, and that's where that manna was kept. There's also a rod that budded, Aaron's rod. Remember, if you read through the law, you see the time when Aaron's authority was challenged and different rods representing different tribes were offered, rods that had been cut from trees. They had no attachment to the tree at all. And God, through a miracle, showed that Aaron's rod was, uh, that Aaron was the rightful authority by causing his rod to bud and actually produce almonds. 
when it had no attachment to a tree or any source of water or anything like that. And that was a big uh, rupture, you might say, in, in, in uh, the nation when all of that happened. And, but God, through a miracle, was establishing that he had chosen Aaron and certainly the Levites as those who would approach to him, and that was the proof of it. And so that they would know ever after they placed that rod in the ark itself, and there, and then in addition, the thing that we perhaps think most often when we think of the Ark of the Covenant is the covenant itself. The end of verse four, it says the tables of the covenant. And of course, that's the, as we think of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, it's those gold, excuse me, those tablets, stone tablets, which Moses had to uh, bring up to the Lord, and the Lord wrote on them with his own finger, the scripture says. He broke the first set, but then there was another set, and it's that set that were placed within the ark. It's also called the ark of the testimony. So this is the words of God, the covenant of God, the two copies of the covenant, one for Israel, one for God, to signify that this covenant was made with Israel, and they were placed within the ark. And then on top of the ark, verse 5, it says above it, above the ark, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And so you have a covering on top of the ark, and on that covering were fashioned out of gold cherubim, angels, winged angels. We don't know how many faces were crafted on these particular cherubim? If you read Ezekiel, read other places, there are times where there are, the faces are in question, and it's not to say every cherubim is exactly alike, but these angels were on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and that was called a seat, the mercy seat, and over all of that and above that, not resting on anything, was the presence of God. God, when he came to his people, came and came to that tabernacle. God very specifically giving orders and requirements for how he is to be approached, how is he is to be worshipped, how he is to be pictured with regard to the surroundings. But the writer says in verse 5, the end of the verse, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He's actually moving beyond this, not because there aren't things to learn from just going into those details. And I would just encourage you that as you study the Old Testament, as you look, whether it's the tabernacle or other aspects of the worship of God, there is much to learn. There's much to learn about God. There's much to learn about worship. I like what Benjamin Warfield said one time. He said, the Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished, but dimly lit or dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but brings it out in clearer view, much of what is in it but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. And so what he's talking about is how there is this, there's this rich image of the worship of God, and the New Testament shines light on it. And as it shines light on it, we get to see more about what that meant, but also about what God did. And we're going to come to some things even in this chapter that I think will highlight that for us, that there was there were pictures in the Old Testament that really, as we understand the picture, we more understand more about the reality as well. But the, the author here is really not wanting to dwell so much on the shadow as he is on the substance. And that's why he says in the end of verse five, these things we cannot now speak in detail. Verse six, now when these things have been so prepared... Okay, all of that is set in place. The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. Okay, that bread needs to be replaced. 
the oil needs to be replaced. The incense needs to be added to. And so over time, as the children of Israel moved or whatever they were, wherever they were, that tabernacle was set up. There was this constant activity on the part of the priesthood to service that portion of the tabernacle. And you would see, if you went to the tabernacle, sacrifices, morning and evening, you would see constant activity on the part of the priesthood. And there were no seats in the tabernacle. It was always active priests moving around, doing what they were doing for the sake of the sacrifices, for the sake of these things in the holiest place. But, verse 7, so that's the outer tabernacle, that's the holy place, but into the second, that is into the holiest place, only the high priest enters once a year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And so what we have is a picture, a living picture, you might say, of what Christ was going to do by the priests and their activities. Now, the one thing that doesn't correspond in verse 7, which we look at this throughout Hebrews, but the one thing that doesn't correspond to Christ, the one thing that breaks down because it doesn't have any reference point in Christ, is that the high priest and any priest who's offering a sacrifice for themselves, Christ never had to do that because, because Christ was sinless. So when it says, in verse 7, middle of the verse, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. There was no need on the part of Christ, but there was on the part of the priesthood. Even these ones who represented God, and you might say, who are the ones who know the law, who are seeking to apply the law and obey the law and teach the law? They're the priests, but the priests themselves were not perfect. They were sinful too, and God very clearly through the law, shows their sinfulness as even Aaron the high priest, when he is being uh, ordained the very day that he begins his ministry, there are sacrifices that are having to be given on, the, uh, on behalf of his household. Okay, So these things, verse 6, have been so prepared, the priests are entering into the second place only once a year. That's the old covenant. That's the old covenant worship. What did that mean? What was that about? And the writer draws attention to what it was about. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. I'll read that again, that the way into the holy place has not been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. So as long as that Old Testament tabernacle stood, as long as it testified, if I could put it that way, as long as it was there, what did it signify? That the way into the holiest place had not yet been disclosed. And if you think about the events surrounding the crucifixion of Christ, his death upon the cross, what took place on the very day that Christ died? The veil was rent from top to bottom. And within about 35 years or so, what also happened? Jerusalem was destroyed, and there was no more earthly tabernacle. Now, there's a question as to whether or not the writer of Hebrews is living at a time and writing at a time when the tabernacle is still there. It, uh, it appears that it is. That's part of the reason he's writing what he's writing to the Hebrews. He's trying to encourage them that they do have a high priest, but he's passed into the heavens. He's trying to encourage them that that earthly tabernacle has a heavenly referent. The earthly is a shadow. The heavenly is the reality. And so as he writes, he's trying to show them the reality or the substance of which all this was a shadow. But look at verse 9. In addition to that symbol of the very standing of the tabernacle, its presence, he says, accordingly, verse 9, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. 
Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. The way that he expresses that time of reformation, we're not talking about the Protestant Reformation, but a time of a new order when God changes things, which he, of course, was going to do through Christ. But as he mentions gifts and sacrifices, that, of course, was very much a part of Old Testament worship. There was the continual offering of sacrifices. There were regulations regarding food. Remember all the clean and unclean animals that the children of Israel were to uh, avoid if it was unclean or they were able to eat if it was clean. The reference to drink, when it says in verse 10, they relate only to food and drink. The Nazarite vows involved a refusal to drink any, any alcohol, any strong drink. The priesthood also had some regulations regarding drink. And then he says various washings, which would be those ritual cleansings related to if you happen to touch a dead body, if you happen to touch something that a dead body had touched and it was known, there was a cleansing. You had to go through a time of cleansing. Um, if you had sickness, there were, there were washings. And so he's talking about all of those different things. He says those things that they went through, what did they not do? They didn't make a person perfect in conscience. They didn't really wash the person. They really didn't cleanse them spiritually. But it was a picture. He says in verse 10, again, regulations, end of the verse, for the body or the flesh, literally, imposed until a time of reformation. So here's the first tabernacle. Here's the tent itself, the holy place, the holiest place, all of its furniture, furnishings, you might say. And then you have the priesthood and their activity and the various laws that applied to the children of Israel. But none of that made anyone cleansed or whole. None of that saved anyone. It was a picture. It was pointing to something. What were, what were those priests pointing to? What were those sacrifices pointing to? Well, we're not left to any question. Verse 11, he says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So we've got the first tabernacle, which relates to that first covenant. But now we have a second tabernacle, but the true tabernacle, and that tabernacle is related to the new covenant. There's a new high priest. And it is, of course, the great high priest. He's not of the tribe of Aaron. He's not, not of the family of Aaron, not of the tribe of Levi. He is a high priest, as he's argued earlier in the book of Hebrews. He's a high priest according to the oath of God. He's according to the uh, order of Melchizedek. And he has come also to offer a sacrifice, but only one. And through that one single sacrifice, not through the blood of goats and calves. He enters the holy place once for all. So let's just take a few moments and think about verses 11 through 14 and what the author is saying here. He's talking about how the new covenant operates. The essentials of the new covenant have to do with the place. There is a tabernacle, just like there was in the old. It also has to do with a sacrifice, but it's not goats and calves. It's the sacrifice of Christ himself. And then the effect that it had, that one sacrifice and the effect that it had. Now, if you were to look at the Old Testament and you watched, even during your lifetime, a high priest, and you saw the sacrifices that happened on a daily basis, but you were there on the Day of Atonement and you observed seventh month, the 10th day, all that went through with the 
offerings and sacrifices of that day. And then the day was done. And the very next year, it happened again. And the very next year, it happened again. And the very next year, it happened again. What would you think? Well, this is a part of the ritual. This is what we're supposed to do. You, you would also think over time, this is one of the points the writer of Hebrews makes, that whatever's happening, though it's obedience to God, it's not actually accomplishing a purpose. It's not actually effective because there were sins last year. There's sins against this year and there's sins against the following year. And they keep on year after year, the sins of the people continually have to be atoned for. So there's a place, there's a sacrifice, and there's an effect. And regarding the place, it is, verse 11, the greater and more perfect tabernacle. He'll elaborate on it later, but he says not made with hands. This is not of human construction. Bezalel, the others who participated, they didn't build this one. No, this is actually this is the substance of which that was a shadow. They built, like you might say, a scale model of what was really in the heavens. That's what God specified. He was showing them something about heaven as they built this tabernacle on earth. Notice he says that is to say not of this creation. This isn't something that man made. Of course, as you think about anything that was made, that is made, God is the source of it. God made it. He's not drawing attention to how it was made here. He's just saying that this tabernacle is the perfect one. And so that's the place. But now the sacrifice, he says, not, verse 12, through the blood of goats and calves. This isn't any animal. And even the animals, there's, a, there's an analogy that breaks down because the animals were always chosen by the people who brought them. They were chosen. They were meant to be uh, without any blemish, without any blindness, without any kind of scars or anything. It was supposed to be a perfect animal, but those animals, as they were taken from their pen or wherever they were, they didn't know what was coming. And when it came down to it, do you think they were willing? And they might have stood there in silence but eventually that throat has to be cut and the animal has to die and there would be a struggle. But this sacrifice that the writer of Hebrews draws attention to, which is the true, the perfect sacrifice was the blood of Christ. When Christ appeared, verse 11, as a high priest, he came, verse 12, middle of the verse, through his own blood. It was his sacrifice, which was a willing sacrifice. You just read through the Gospels, and you observe the life of Christ and his speech when it comes to the fact that he was going to die, that he was going to Jerusalem, and that even when he was in the garden, he was going to go out and meet those who were coming to arrest him. Jesus did not shrink from the cross, and he was not caught. He willingly laid down his life. He gave himself over to those who were going to beat him, punch him, scourge him, crucify him. But no one took his life from him. He willingly went. Verse 12, it says, through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. I'm just going to read something from a revised, revised standard version. It says, when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And what that translation does is it adds a word that has actually been a point of confusion, whether someone has read this translation or not, but it's the word taking. Taking. Let's look at it again in the American Standard. Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. 
he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You don't see the word taking because the word taking is not in the text. The Revised Standard Version translators were perhaps trying to explain what was taking place there, but the problem with that is that what it implies is that somehow Jesus was taking his blood into heaven and somehow offering a sacrifice there. That the sacrifice was not taking place on earth, but actually after Christ died, rose again, and then ascended into heaven, he somehow took blood there and offered it before God. Now, that view is not a biblical view. It may be suggested by that translation, but the word taking is not in there. And when you think about the death of Christ and the shedding of his blood, that took place on earth. And it was when he died on the cross. And let's not think of anything mystical about the blood of Christ as it's applied either. I think if you start to get mystical about the blood of Christ, he was the perfect son of God, but he was a man. And so it was as the blood of a man was being shed. When he was scourged and beaten and bloodied, his blood was being spattered. But that doesn't mean that somehow that blood, as it was spattered, was then applied in some way to those that it landed on. And I realize I'm being somewhat graphic here, but it's partly because there have been thoughts that have developed over time that have made some sort of a mystical blood of Christ that is pure and incorruptible in a way that makes it somehow almost magical and has to be presented in the very heavens. There was a book that was written called The Chemistry of the Blood by an author named M.R. DeHaan. He was a very popular speaker, radio Bible class, also co-editor of Our Daily Bread. And he says this in a book called The Chemistry of the Blood. He says, after Christ had made the atonement, he arose from the tomb. And then as the eternal high priest ascended into heaven to present the blood in the Holy of Holies where God dwells. And that blood is there today pleading for us and prevailing for us. The priest in the tabernacle never spoke a word. All he did was present the blood, and that was enough. And then he says this, perhaps there's a golden chalice in heaven where every drop of the precious blood is still in existence, just as pure, just as potent, just as fresh as 2,000 years ago. In other words, he's putting forth the idea that there's something about that blood. I mean, you'd have to think about how was that then collected and then if it was collected, how did you find a container? And then where is that in view, even as Christ ascended into heaven? This is just all imagination. This is not scripture. Jesus offered his sacrifice upon the cross. And as he offered his sacrifice on the cross, he then entered into the heavens upon the ascension after he rose from the dead. But he did not need to take some golden chalice full of blood up to the heavens. What did he say when he finished his sacrifice? He said, it is finished. We need to be very careful to heed what the Bible says. We need to be careful not to get it caught up with what seems to be a very unique and unusual idea. If it's an unusual idea and it's not supported by Scripture, then it needs to be tossed. We need to hold fast to what God has said. And so verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the great and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. That just references his sacrifice. And then his entering of the holy place once for all, yes, is his ascension to the right hand of God as he sits there and intercedes for God's people. And what does it say at the end of the verse? Having obtained eternal redemption. He accomplished it. He paid the ransom. He purchased sinners for himself and for God. And the effectiveness of that sacrifice, verse 13, it says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, he's drawing attention to the 
the, the sacrifices in the law, whether it's the blood of goats and bulls, or in one case, the ashes of a heifer, when the people were unclean, that's the sacrifice he's drawing attention to. It's Numbers 19. This red heifer was killed and burned. Its ashes were mixed with water to cleanse the people. He's drawing attention to those earthly rituals, which when performed, there was a ritual cleansing for the people. And then you could say that if they offered a sacrifice as God commanded, were they cleansed? Yes, they were cleansed according to the law. Were they spiritually cleansed? No, there was not anything that actually did something for their, their heart. If they acted in faith, well, certainly God honors faith and God uh, rewards faith, but it didn't have to do with that outward washing. But the writer here says in verse 13 that if those goats and bulls, the blood and the ashes of the heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, if that was the result of that was cleansing, that ritual cleansing, then how much more, verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God? So you have this earthly picture of cleansing. But what is it pointing to? It's pointing to the reality, which was Christ, as he offered his sacrifice and his people were cleansed as they trust in him. Isaac Watts wrote, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. My faith would lay her hand on that dear head of thine when I, like a penitent, stand and there confess my sin. My soul looks back to see the burden thou didst bear when hanging on the cursed tree and knows her guilt was there. Believing we rejoice to see the curse remove, we bless the lamb with cheerful voice and sing his bleeding love. Do you see the love of Christ? in these verses as it describes his sacrifice for us in our place to obtain our eternal redemption. You see his love as he offers himself. Notice that in verse 14, where it says, who through the eternal spirit offered himself. Again, the willingness of Christ. Ephesians 5, 2 says he gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. No animal could or did offer itself. Christ did, and he did in our place. That was his obedience to the Father. It also shows his love for us. And he offered his blood. That's one of the things that's clear in the Old Testament and the New is there's an emphasis on blood. And he'll later say, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But when we think about the blood of Christ as he laid down his life for us, so what does that refer? I came across Stephen Charnock, a discourse of the cleansing virtue of the blood of Christ. He said, the blood of Jesus Christ by this is meant the last act in the tragedy of his life. His blood being the ransom of our souls, the price of our redemption, and the expiation of our, sin, of our sin. The shedding of his blood was the highest and most excellent part of his obedience. His whole life was a continual suffering, but his death was the top and the complement of his obedience. For in that he manifested the greatest love to God and the highest love to man the expiatory sacrifices under the law were always bloody. Death was to be endured for sin, and blood was the life of the creature. And then he says the blood or death of Christ is the cause of our justification. You have not resisted unto blood, the writer of Hebrews later says, striving against sin. But Jesus did, and he did for us to the point of shedding blood. And that's testified too as well when it says, without blemish to God. When he offered himself, it says he offered himself through the eternal spirit without blemish to God. There was no sin, 
There was no unrighteousness. It was not for any sin of his own that he laid down his life or that he was killed, that he was executed. It was as all the sacrifices were meant to be substitutionary. This is the one substitutionary sacrifice that was truly effective. He offered it through the Holy Spirit or the eternal spirit, as he's called here. The idea certainly is the Holy Spirit was guiding, directing Christ in all of his earthly life. And as he offered up his sacrifice, he was filled with, directed by the Spirit, offering himself to the Father. And what was the effect? Well, obviously it was eternal redemption, verse 12. But in verse 14, the effect of his blood sacrifice was to cleanse your conscience, you might see a marginal note there. There's some original, earlier manuscripts that say our conscience. I believe the writer is certainly participating in these thoughts of what Christ's blood did. But he says the blood of Christ cleanses your or our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. As we live our life apart from Christ, what do we do? We commit sins that are worthy of death. In fact, we're walking in death, according to Ephesians chapter 2. We're walking in death. We're separated from God. As we do what we do, we're making ourselves guilty before God. We're actually walking in a path of death. The works that we're doing are dead works. Someone described this phrase, dead works, as acts that lead to death. And those are on our conscience. When we come to understand what God's word says and what it teaches about what sin is. But in verse 14, when it says what Christ's blood does is it cleanses our conscience from those dead works. And then there's a transformation of our lives to then serve God. Where our lives were meaningless or only leading to death. Now we're serving God. and we're living to please God. Instead of doing our own will, which leads to death, we're doing God's will on the basis of what Christ has done. That's the path of life. And that question that he asks, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who've been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, if that was true, and it did, according to the law, it didn't cleanse their conscience, but God said that they were cleansed in terms of the ritual of the law. They obeyed the law. But there's a greater fulfillment. There's a greater reality. And it has to do with spiritual cleansing. And it has to do with the blood of Christ. And it has to do with his sacrifice. And it has to do with his sacrifice applied to me. Again, we're not talking about taking his literal blood and somehow putting it on my forehead or something. We're talking about his substitution in my place and my faith in that so that I'm cleansed and washed. And I would ask you today, have you been washed in the blood of Christ? Have you been cleansed by the blood of Christ? Has your conscience been cleansed by the sacrifice of Christ? Or are you still walking in death and walking after death? God knows, but as we come to observe the Lord's table today, it is what we rejoice in. If we believed in Christ, we know that his sacrifice was effective. As we remember his body given for us as a sacrifice, as we remember his blood shed for us, as we as an act of faith, remember him. We're remembering the significance of what he did on the cross for us as he obtained our eternal redemption. Praise the Lord. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we labor to understand, we thank you that you had a plan of revealing yourself to this world. And we thank you, Lord, that you had a plan of revealing yourself in Christ. And we thank you that Christ as high priest has appeared and he has offered his sacrifice and it is effective. Effective for all those who believe. 
and today as we remember him. We pray that we might rejoice. We pray also, Lord, that as we remember him, we would not cherish or hold fast to any sin, any way of living that would displease you. And so we pray that you'd help us to examine ourselves and to partake in a worthy manner. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.